We will be looking in Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there with me and turn to verses 22 through 25. But we are continuing our, our study through the second time around uh, on Mark chapter 14 through 16. And as you know, we've called this sermon series uh, A Theology of the Cross. We want to focus on the theological elements um, that we weren't able to dig into deeply in our first pass so that we might benefit from all things here that relate to the Gospel of Mark. One way that I wanted to begin discussing this with you this morning is by talking to you about ways we think about um, you know, traditional things or things that we do regularly, things that, that become rote. For example, uh, driving a car is a serious matter, isn't it? We, we believe that this is an important thing. We have to take driver's education. We have driver's tests. We have to renew our licenses, so forth and so on. We have all this stuff that has to happen in order to drive legally. And so we see it as a serious matter, but there are times when I, I don't know if you're like me or not, I, I assume that some of you are, I find myself drifting off and having no recollection of the last mile or two of my driving. Don't know where I've been, what I've seen. I wake up, it seems, to realize I'm two miles closer to the place I'm going and don't know how I got there. Now, I suppose this is how people get into accidents, um, but there are many things like this that fall into the category of important but can be done without thinking right? Driving's important, but it can, in fact, be done without thinking. Now, unfortunately, participating in the Lord's Supper fits into this same category. We become so familiar with the practice of the Lord's Supper, like driving to work or, or driving home the same way every day, that we can easily fall into what I call the rut of rote. The rut of rote. This is, you're so used to the repetition, you don't even think about what it is that you're doing, even if it's an important thing. As we continue this series on the theology of the cross from these chapters in Mark, I want to take you to the next stop on this theological tour, which is verses 22 through 25 in Mark 14. Let me read them for you. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this is our third stop on this theological tour that we've been on, and this particular stop is chock full of theological truth. The, the Lord's Supper is filled with rich theology, as you can imagine. I want to unwrap this for you this morning, and I want to start by saying this. Theology is one of those things that you cannot do without thinking. You might be able to drive a car without thinking, you may be able to do theological things like participating in the Lord's Supper, but you can't do theology without thinking. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap and join me as we dissect 
this deep and rich theology from these verses in front of us. Mark 14, 23 to 25. Each of the four gospels record this event, this Lord's Supper, each with their own emphasis. And to begin to understand the theology that's wrapped up in the supper that's before us here, we need to first understand the theological errors associated with the Lord's Supper. So let's begin by correcting some errors, all right? Correcting errors. First of all, literal or figurative? This is an error that we need to address because it's commonplace. Many of your friends, many of my friends, believe that the literal body and blood of Christ is experienced in the Lord's Supper. The Catholic Church, for example, teaches that the elements of the bread and juice actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus upon the spoken words of the priest. They call it the doctrine of transubstantiation. When the priest speaks the holy words, the elements in the cup become the reality. The juice becomes the blood, the bread becomes the broken body. The Catholics, of course, get this from literally interpreting Jesus' words in verse 22. Look at verse 22. And he said to them, take, this is my body. That's what they would emphasize. This is my body. Jesus said, it is my body. And then in verse 24, he said, this is my blood. These are Jesus' words, is and is. Not is like would be their argument. And so they were saying, they are saying that Jesus is speaking of his literal body and blood. But let me, let me try to defend how we might believe, how we do believe. For one thing, Jesus made a practice of referring to himself in metaphors throughout his entire ministry. For example, he called himself the bread of life. He called himself the door, the gate, the vine, the light of the world, the shepherd. All these things were metaphors for a spiritual reality. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to John 6, he talks about needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be blessed of God. And so when he get to the Lord's Supper, it should not surprise us further that he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus regularly referred to spiritual truths through the use of metaphor. Additionally, there is a theological problem with the interpretation the Catholic Church goes with, that this is the literal body and blood of Christ. If the bread and cup actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus, that would require additional sacrifices of that body and blood of Jesus, which we know it cannot be because the Bible clearly states concerning the sacrifice of Christ, it is done once for all for the remission of sins. Not twice, not three times, not a thousand times, once for all. And then on top of this, we know that Jesus is currently in heaven with one body that is fully functioning. It is not missing parts and pieces or amounts of blood. So because of these things that I've mentioned, and there's more, we do not believe in the error of transubstantiation. It is not the physical body and physical blood of Christ. But there's other errors that I want to address, and the errors that I'm going, the error that I'm going to address currently, or right now, is more likely to be our error, the evangelical, reformed error, 
that, that we have. And that is this. Are all believers or just worthy believers to participate in the Lord's Supper? What if you're in sin? Ought you to take the supper? Are you worthy to take the supper? Should you be up here? Should that question be asked of you? So some might say, well, no, I don't think I am worthy to take the Lord's Supper, so I'm going to abstain today. I'm just, I, I haven't had a winning streak for a while, and so I'm going to abstain. Or I've had a losing streak for too long, so I'm going to abstain. Or they haven't received the certificate of good standing from their church that some churches may provide. Uh, by the way, we don't provide that certificate of good standing. Uh, look at verse 23 to see if Jesus corrects this potential error and maybe corrects you in the moment. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they, circle, all drank of it. Now, were all these 11 worthy? Were they sin-free? Had they been on a winning streak? No. In fact, they had not been. Peter was actively living in pride, thinking that he could, he could get through any battle that he might face. All 11 were guilty of lack of faith. None of them were on a winning streak. None of them were worthy in and of themselves. And yet, they all drank, it says. So what do we learn from this? We, we learn, and this demonstrates, that all believers are to participate without consideration of worthiness. Of the 11 disciples present, Jesus served all of them the bread and the wine. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. In God's eyes, we are only righteous in Christ, and righteous we are because of Christ, which makes us worthy. The reason that you are invited, welcomed, and worthy to participate is because you are connected to the worthy one. Does that make sense to you? That's the only reason you're here. If it were left up to your moral conduct, we would none of us would be worthy. So this is... This is the news. We are worthy because we are connected to the worthy one. He is the only reason that we're included. He is the only reason we're allowed to participate. When we become part of the church through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we immediately become worthy regardless of our moral standing. Jesus expects every Christian to participate in the supper. Now, there are times when you might want to abstain if you're living in known sin. But other than the rare exception of that, you ought to be up here, especially if you're struggling with sin. And I'll explain that in a minute. Let me, let me speak to another thing that's connected, directly or indirectly, however you view it. We do believe it is right and prudent to think about the Lord's Supper in relation to your public confession of faith and baptism. We think that's a good connection. But... The sin of delaying your baptism, and that's what it is 
It is a sin of delaying your baptism. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, you should be baptized. If you're not baptized, you are in sin. So the sin of delaying your baptism for any reason, but particularly prideful reasons, is the one that is included in the weakness category that taking the Lord's Supper is meant to address. The reason that you are spiritually weak, maybe besides your lack of knowledge or hard-heartedness or propensity to pride, is that the supper has not been a regular occurrence in your Christian life. The supper is intended by God, designed by God, to strengthen weak faith, to encourage faithful obedience. And so, get up here and take the supper. Then get baptized, if that is your issue. Of course, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you continue to live out your own agenda, and your life does not demonstrate a commitment to him, you should not participate. Paul said that when you do that kind of thing, you're actually building up judgment in your life, the judgment of God. So there are some errors that I think are important to correct. Now let's dig in and see if we can unpack some of the truth, theological truth that is found here in these four verses in Mark 14. And I'm calling this second point cementing truth. And the first truth that I'd like to cement in your mind is the comment that Jesus makes about his blood of the covenant, covenantal blood. What in the world is covenantal blood? It says, my, Jesus said in verse 24, my blood of the covenant. In the same way that bread symbolizes the body of Christ, this bread up here right now symbolizes the body so that the cup that we take symbolizes his blood. In order for any covenant between God and man to be ratified, the Bible tells us that blood spilt must be involved. Okay? There is no ratification of any covenant between God and man that does not include the spilling of blood. Take anyone you want, for example, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, all required a ratification in spilt blood. And lo and behold, you get to Hebrews chapter 9, and that requirement continues, even in the new covenant, which is why Jesus said, the new covenant in my blood. Blood remained a requirement of God to ratify the covenant, even the new covenant. Hebrews 9 verses 16 through 20 confirms this. But why, why did the new covenant, why does God require in the new covenant the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God to be spilt? Why? Here it is. And I think this is an important theological truth for you to grasp. Because of the eternal nature and benefit provided to the many whom he would redeem. The eternal nature and benefit provided for the many whom he would redeem. Matthew 26, 28, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So on the cross, Jesus died as the perfect and permanent substitute, bearing the guilt of everyone who was chosen to believe in him. You remember in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice these animals of the covenant repeatedly. 
So sin, sacrifice. Sin, sacrifice to cover. Sin, blood spilling to cover. Sin, blood. On and on and on it went. Until what? Until Calvary. And then the sacrifice of the Lamb of God was shed once for the remission of sin for all. Okay? There's the difference. The Old Testament, sin was not dealt with. Sin was covered. It wasn't forgiven. It was covered by the blood sacrifices. But now we are told that our sin is dealt with in a permanent way. It is thrown into the deepest sea. It is separated from God as far as east is from the west. Sin is dealt with completely, eternally. How? Through the infinite, perfect blood of Christ. The blood of the animals was not infinite, was not perfect, but the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, is. Hence, no more need for sacrifice. Does that make sense? Okay. So, Jesus endured the penalty of God's wrath, satisfied God's divine justice, ratified the new covenant of forgiveness and salvation by the once-for-all shedding of his perfect blood. Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, even saw this. And this is what he said in Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. It is true today in the New Covenant, the New Testament. Why? Because the sacrifice of Christ's blood is infinite, eternal, and perfect. So this ended the need for Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrificial system died with the death of Christ on Calvary, hence the tearing of the veil. Now we all have access to God permanently, not temporarily, permanently. So let's second now look at the second truth we want to cement, the institution, the actual practice of the Lord's Supper. There's some, there's some truth in here that, that is profound and meaningful to us who believe. First of all, who gave the institution? Who gave the Lord's Supper? It's called the Lord's Supper because the Lord gave it. Jesus gave the supper himself. He is the Lord and head of the church. He determines the standards, the boundaries, and establishes the priorities. And so Jesus himself gave the supper for the following reasons. Here is why Jesus wanted you and me to remember these elements as they picture Christ himself and his sacrifice on Calvary in perpetuity. First of all, Jesus gave the supper to the church to confirm our faith throughout our earthly pilgrimage. He doesn't want you and me wandering around in our Christian pilgrimage wondering whether or not the death of Christ was sufficient for our sins. And so he tells us to do this whenever you eat it. As every time you get together, remember what is being remembered. Remember the work of Christ on Calvary for you. It is meaningful. It will help you build your faith, confirm your faith, as you continue down this difficult road called life. Secondly, Jesus gave the supper in love. Why? To increase our joy, to bring comfort in times of disappointment and sorrow. We all have times of disappointment and sorrow. We all need comfort. We all need to be given a, a sprinkle of hope and joy. And so this is what the supper does. This is why Jesus gave it. 
to remind us that Jesus is ours. The God of heaven, the God become man is ours. He gave himself for you and to you in the supper and on Calvary. Next, Jesus gave the supper to support our fight against sin. Do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle with uh, maybe a prevailing sin or a besetting sin, it has been called in the past? What should be your response to your struggle with sin? To run and hide from the people of God? To make distance between you and God like Adam and Eve did? Is that the solution, Christian? No, that's not. If you struggle with a besetting sin or a prevailing sin, Jesus' answer would be, come to the table. Be reminded of my love. Be reminded of my provision. In this supper, we, we see everything we need, all the strength we need to win the battles with sin. We also see the forgiveness for the times that we lose those battles with sin. The strength to fight and the forgiveness when we fail. Thinking of the elements will cause us to overflow with loving affection for the one who did all of this for us, for me, for you. So Jesus instituted this ceremony and celebration to clearly, with, without confusion, mark his love for us. Look how much I love you. And I think if you spend just a moment thinking about the elements, the, the broken bread, the, the, the cup of juice, and what they represent, I think your, your heart will, will melt with affection for Christ. That's the intended purpose. And I'm not going to say much about this second point, but it, we, it says in your bulletin, given on that night. It was specifically given on the night it was given because it replaced the Old Testament Passover, the Jewish Passover, which was a picture of the new covenant, right? So the, the sacrifice of, of the lamb, the, the blood on the doorpost, the, the removal of the leaven, all these things picture uh, what was to come with the arrival of Christ and his suffering for us on Calvary. It happened on that night. Mark makes a point of it. Paul makes a point of it. On the night he was betrayed, he said. Not before, on that night. And then thirdly, we have some intended pictures here, which I've been referring to all along, but I'll make this overt so we can't miss it. The elements of the supper present glorious mysteries intended for your soul to feast on. These pictures are intended for you to spiritually just gobble up and, and learn from and enjoy. They these elements represent the central truths of our Christian beliefs. The broken body and spilt blood of Christ, is that not central? This reminds us of that. These elements are wonderful ways to help us understand all that Jesus did for us in order to save our souls and forgive our sins. I'm going to show you a few here. First of all, the bread. Bread, we say, is a basic building block or a basic foundation of our diet. I know some of you are on breadless diets, but Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said that bread is the support of life. Jesus himself called himself the bread of life for a reason. Without Jesus in our daily life, and here's the picture, without Jesus in our daily lives, our Christian walk will wither and die, just like you will wither and die without bread. 
This is what we are supposed to see here. How much of Christ are you taking in? Many of us are taking in enough bread. Are we taking in enough Christ? Is it evident? So taking the bread in the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fundamental necessity for Jesus in our daily Christian living. Do you understand that? Do you believe it? Do you take it in? Then there's the wine, which was used in the Last Supper. It's made to cheer the heart, the Bible tells us. Jesus brings true and lasting cheer, true and lasting joy to all who actually partake of him. If you actually take in Christ, what is one of the great results and benefits? Joy, cheer. This is pictured in the elements. Now, think with me. In order to make bread, wheat must be ground to powder. In order to make wine, grapes must be crushed so the juice will flow. Then, in order for bread and wine to have any benefit to those who are partaking, they have to take it in, right? You do not benefit from bread and wine if it sits on the table or on the counter. The only way you benefit from bread and wine is if you take it in. The same is, in tr is true with Christ, isn't it? The supper reminds us that Jesus was ground and crushed for us. This was required in order for him to be of any value to us, in order for your sins to be forgiven, he had to endure the justice and wrath of God. Hence, the grinding, the crushing. He took on all of that to satisfy God's justice so that we might be set free. The work of Christ is of no value to us if it remains on the counter or on the table. We must take it in. Hence, the, the actual handing out of the elements and you taking these pieces of element, the, the bread and the cup, and taking it in is to remind you of the necessity of you must take in Christ to be of any value. And then we have this important area of remembrance. Mark didn't say it, but Paul did, and all the other gospel accounts say it. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's dig into what this remembrance means. We serve you the Lord's Supper at Sun Valley Church two times per month, once on Sunday morning and once at our monthly prayer meeting. This month, because of this sermon and me wanting to apply the sermon to your heart at the end of it, we're going to be serving the Lord's Supper to you three times, last week, this week, and when we have prayer meeting next week. Or when is it tonight? I can't remember where it is. Next week. So we have three times that you will be able to benefit from taking in the pictures of Christ, which help you understand, apply, taking in Christ himself. All right? Now, I, I hesitate to get into this, but I'm not going to get too detailed, so I'll, I'll say it quickly. If there, this is such a great value to the Christian, and it is, I think it's inestimable, the value of the Lord's Supper and taking it. Why don't we serve it weekly like some churches? Is it wrong or right? And the answer is no. Many churches serve it weekly. Many churches serve it monthly. Some churches serve it annually. We decided on twice per month here at Sun Valley Church. But why not weekly? And 
we're, we find our play, ourselves in, in good company when I say this. John Calvin said, because of the rut of rote. That's why. Because the weakness of the fallen heart, the rut of rote in the Lord's Supper is dangerous. To come up here and flippantly take the supper, unthinkingly take the supper, is a condemnation. So, we have tried to balance this with the blessing of the supper and avoiding the rut of rote by providing you, serving you, offering you two times per month. And there's nothing sacred there. There's just some pastoral wisdom in it. And we're not saying those who serve it weekly aren't considering these things. I think it's wonderful to do that. I just, I just see the challenges that Calvin talks about. So, as much as we, that's all I'm going to say about that. As much as we know what Jesus did for us, as much as we value what Jesus did for us, here's the amazing thing. <laughs> We're still prone to forget him and relegate him to a secondary position, aren't we? Even though we highly value all the work of Christ, and if we were to talk about it, we may even produce tears. We seem to forget all that he's done quickly, and we relegate him to a second position behind so many other things in life. In fact, the other good things come from the giver of the gift as well. So instead of embracing the giver as we ought, we embrace the gift. So Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. So at least here at Sun Valley Church, you'll have twice a month to engage your heart, to affect your affections, to stir up your emotions in love for your Savior. And yet, even though we relegate Christ to a secondary position often, even though we may even go days without remembering anything of Christ and his love for us, he continues to pursue us. He, the Puritans called him the hound of heaven. He continues to pursue us, even though we've turned our back to him, even though we've forgotten the value of his sacrifice, even though we cause or we put it in a secondary place. But Jesus continues the pursuit. And as little as we think about Jesus, it would seem that we are burdened somehow to keep our interest in him. As if the bird is burdened by his wings. The bread and the wine are intended to remind us of all good things we have in Christ. To remind us of the wounds that he suffered instead of us. His flesh was crushed, his blood was spilt, so that you cannot question, legitimately question, whether or not God loves you. The supper was given by Christ to melt hardened hearts, which is why you need to be here. 
There ought not to be a time in a Christian life where you do not experience the supper at least monthly. Is your commitment to spiritual disciplines waning? Here's a solution for you. If your if you're interest in and commitment to spiritual disciplines is waning, come to the supper. Be reminded of all that Christ has done for you. And see if his request that you spend time with him changes. So the supper, instead of causing us to be less interested, actually is designed to ignite the dry sticks of our heart to fire a holy affection for our Savior. To truly be in love with Christ and look forward to this moment when we come together once a month at Sun Valley Church and are served the things that remind us of God's love for us. Another thing to consider, do temptations usually win the battle for your soul? When you encounter a temptation, who's usually victorious? The temptation or you? The supper is designed by God to restrain worldly affections. Why? Can you really do the things that you want to do, sinful things you want to do, if the Lord is on your mind? Not likely. This is one of the designs of the supper. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, and then throughout the rest of Romans, that we don't continue to sin once we start thinking about our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Sin becomes less and less effective, less and less powerful when you consider all that Christ has done for us, which the supper does. If Paul said that if we, are, if we have died in Christ, then we will live with him. If we are buried with him, we will be raised with him. The sin that we struggle with will not dominate us. It will not have dominion over us. Why? Because of what's seen in the supper. He has conquered death, he has conquered sin, and he's given those promises to you and to me. Some may sit here, even when we're serving the supper, and struggle with believing that their sins are forgiven. Are you one of those who look at your life, look at the sins you've committed, and are personally convinced that the love and goodness and grace of God isn't sufficient for that sin, for my sin? <clears throat> well, if there's anything that lifts a heavy burden of the potential of unforgiven sin, it's remembering all that Christ went through to accomplish your forgiveness. And this is what's pictured in the elements. Friends, this is a, a massive source of confidence for you. Look at what Christ has done. Listen to these verses in Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Are you saved? Are you in Christ, still struggling with whether or not God has forgiven all your sin? Then this is you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, not him. Who's going to condemn? 
Who might condemn you? Not Jesus. He's the one who died for you, Paul says. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Friends, your sins are forgiven. Look at all that Christ has done. Do you struggle to serve God as you think you ought to? Why? Do you feel like you just don't have enough time and energy to serve God as you wish you could? Well, what does the supper do for that? What is remembering the Lord's Supper? What else might cure your apathy for service to God than taking a brief look at all that Christ has done for you? Now let's go to the final point of the sermon, applying the supper. Applying the Lord's Supper. We've talked a little bit up to this point about what does it mean to do this in remembrance of me. Um, But let me ask you, when he says do this in remembrance of me, is he asking you to remember some historical facts about who he is? Well, sort of, but not close. But sort of. We, We must remember who he was for sure and what he did for sure, but it's much more than that. Jesus commanded us to remember him was a command to have an affectionate emphasis upon it. Not not a mental assent to something historical. He wants your remembrance to move 18 inches from your brain to your heart. He wants an affectionate response from you. Do this in remembrance of me as a call to the heart, not to the brain. He is Jesus is calling for a quiet moment filled with powerful impressions of all that he did on Calvary for you and for me. This is what we see in the bread. This is what we see in the cup. When the gospel accounts tell the story of Peter denying Christ, this helps us understand what it means to remember Christ. When the gospel accounts tell us the story of Peter denying Christ, they tell us that he remembered, quote, he remembered the words of Jesus and went out and wept bitterly. What caused Peter to go out and weep bitterly? Was a historical fact of what Jesus said? No, it's the way Jesus' words impacted his heart. That's what made him go out and weep bitterly. This is the same kind of effect that the Lord's Supper should have on us in remembrance of me is a call to your affections. Peter's memory of Jesus' words prompted a heart response. His heart was melted. If if you study the words in in those gospel records, it says his innards hurt. This is the kind of memory that Jesus is calling for. He wants your affections touched when we serve you the supper. Not another rut of rote to get through Man, I wish this ended earlier. The game's on. No. He wants our hearts overwhelmed with gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy. Sure, Jesus wants us to remember the history of his suffering, for, for sure. But more, much more than that, he wants your affections inflamed. So, do this in remembrance of me should include a saving knowledge of Christ. If your remembrance of Christ doesn't include a saving knowledge of Christ, you're not remembering him correctly. 
Secondly, the remembrance, do this in remembrance of me must also include your faith in Christ. Looking on Christ without faith is of no effect to the soul. So it includes a knowledge of Christ, of faith in Christ, in his forgiveness of your sins, leaning completely on him. And so when we gather for the supper, we should be thinking and saying, maybe even to one another in the lobby before we get into the service, oh, come look at Christ with me and see him sacrificed there for us. And thirdly, do this in remembrance of me if, if, if it inflames your affections, will lead to communion and worship. Do this in remembrance of me. If it's affected, your heart results in worship of your Savior, results in communion with your God. And so when we remember Jesus, our minds will go to all sorts of different realities of God, like his infinite wisdom. Consider the details of the plans required to forgive your sins. We have a holy and just God who remains holy and just even though he forgives our sin. That requires infinite wisdom. He provided a plan of salvation that protected his holiness and provided grace and love and mercy for us undeserving people. So, as we consider these things, friends, we need to remember finally a proper discerning of his body. This is what Dennis was speaking about earlier that we read from 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read it again just to remind you of what the Apostle Paul um, is saying to us in his institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says this in verses 27 through 34. Now listen for the words discerning or examining. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About these things, I will talk to you more when I come. So... What is discerning the body of Christ here? This seems serious. Paul says some of you are sick. Some of you have died because you haven't discerned the body of Christ as you should. Sounds to me like we ought to know what this is about. Well, first of all, it covers some same territory I've already covered. Discerning Jesus or discerning his body means that you know him as Lord and Savior. You've made a right judgment concerning his identity. He is the God of heaven, the Savior of my soul. I've discerned this correctly. Discerning Christ means that we believe and are connected to him by faith and that in the Lord's Supper, that is confirmed to our hearts. I have taken in Christ. See, the bread, the cup. He is mine and I am his. 
that confirms your faith in Christ Jesus. But it means more than that. Discerning Christ means that we are intimately connected to everyone who embraces him by faith and are treating them as Christ would have you treat them. Paul, Paul talks about one loaf. We share one faith, one loaf. We are one body, one family. Are you discerning the body of Christ that is each other in this room? You can discern the body of Christ in that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your soul, but it seems because we are sin and, and prone to wander, we can ignore the body of Christ, the family of God. Paul means both. Discern Jesus for who he is and discern his family and treat them as you ought. And so, what do we do? We actively and intentionally resist any sin that separates us from one another. We cut it off at the pass quickly. We hold each other accountable. We, we come to the table and we consider, have I sinned against somebody in the body that I ought to apologize to and ask their forgiveness? We don't play favorites with one another. We don't leave people out. We consider each other as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2. We look for ways to encourage and love one another. This is what it means to discern the body. Have you discerned the people sitting around you? What do they need? Do you even know it? Have you tried to meet it? This is what it means to discern the body. This is what this one cup, this one bread reminds us of. This is discerning the body of Christ. And so, friends, here we have more theology to wrestle with, more theology to embrace in the Gospel of Mark. Now we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper. And my hope and prayer is and has been this past week uh, that something will have been said during uh, this sermon that challenges you, that encourages you. I want you, if you wouldn't mind, as you come down to receive the supper today, to think through just one thing that has been mentioned in this supper that might be of spiritual value to you that might encourage your heart, that, that might make you fall more in love with Christ, that might ignite your, your affections to a greater degree. Think on those things. Maybe there's a, a, a sin that you have been unwilling to confess, but now see the importance of doing that. Do that. If you don't know Christ, stay in your seat or confess your sins, acknowledge your need for Christ, embrace Jesus Christ, and then join us at the, at the table. You can do that very quickly, right where you sit. I'm going to read for you the words of institution, um, and then I'm going to pray over those words. And as I pray, elders, if you would come forward, and then you, please, come forward and be served by God's leaders in this church for your encouragement. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me.
Oh God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are completely inadequate to respond to you sufficiently enough to demonstrate all the good things that you've done for us in Christ. I lift, I lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and pray that you would strengthen and nurture their souls, that their, their spirits as they, as they come by faith to the table to receive ministry from you once again would be encouraged. I ask that, that you would strengthen them, build them up, encourage their hearts, help them fight sin. Father, for sending your son Jesus we praise you. We acknowledge our great need for all of his work, his living a perfect life, his dying in our place on Calvary's tree. Bless us now. Bless these elements to the good of your people. And I pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Come forward, please.